presence. And we certainly look forward to the, the glory of your presence uh, when we sit in the heavenlies with you around your throne, worshiping and praising you forevermore. And Father, I thank you that we had such a sweet time to praise you today. And it's good to praise our God. Amen. It is good. And we thank you for your goodness in availing your throne to us. We have access through your Son. Lord, minister to us today. Open up our ears, open up our eyes, open up our hearts. Whatever needs to be opened up, Lord, we lift to you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. John and Lori, we sure have missed you. Welcome back. Glad you're feeling better. If you would open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, this, this morning we're, we're going to be studying verses 19 through 22. And the title of this morning's message is Grace Revealed. Do you remember when God's grace was revealed to you? What a change of life that was, wasn't it? What an incredible and beautiful thing. And of course, we just sang about amazing grace, how appropriate. It's amazing. God is amazing and God is good to us all the time. This section of the scriptures that we're studying this morning it contains a really, really important history in the life of Paul and in the church. As we've studied through Acts chapter 9 up to this point, we've seen how, how Paul was saved on the road to Damascus. He was blinded as part of his conversion and was instructed by Jesus as part of his conversion to go into the city of Damascus. And remember, he, he was going there on his own, for his own purposes, but now God is sending him into that city for God's purposes, and God would then tell him what to do. Jesus also instructed a man named Ananias, and he said to Ananias, he said, Arise and go to the street called Straight, to the home of a man named Judas. And there, when you get there, you're going to find this man that you know who he is, you know what he's done, his name is Saul of Tarsus. And you're going to find him doing something, something that you probably wouldn't have expected. Expected. You're going to find him praying. So Ananias was instructed by Jesus to lay his hands on Saul of Tarsus so that he would regain his sight. And in the meantime, God also gave Saul the vision of the instruction that he gave to Ananias, so that when Ananias re, um, arrived at the scene, well, Paul, of course, or Saul would expect him. So that's exactly what happened. Ananias laid hands on Saul. He, was, he received his sight, and he was baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. Paul's first area of ministry is in the very city where he was going to murder Christians and have them arrested. Let's read verses 19 through 22. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. And straightway, or immediately, he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on his name in Jerusalem? And came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests. 
But Saul increased the more in strength and, continued, and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And of course, this describes Paul's early days of conversion and the very beginning of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And it's important to realize, as we see Paul in his early days as a Christian, the Jewish people would reject him because they rejected Jesus as Messiah. It was his faith in Christ that stood between them. But as I shared last week, Paul had a deep and undying love for the Jewish people, and he certainly wouldn't give up on them, even though they opposed him and the one that he stood for. In Paul's very first opportunity after coming to Christ, it says in verse 22, straightway, he immediately went. Well, where did he go? He, he went to the synagogue. And there Paul preached Christ, that he is the Son of God. Now, this is, this is evidence of incredible light in his life, isn't it? Now, the light of Christ, it's abounding in Paul's life. At the moment of his conversion, he began to see things very, very clearly like never before. And the veil was lifted from his eyes. And he spoke of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. He said, But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. And that veil was removed by Jesus off of Saul of Tarsus's eyes. And he became the Apostle Paul. And certainly... Paul knows what it's like to read the scriptures with the veil on and with the veil removed. Do you remember that? Opening up the word of God before you knew Jesus and probably closed it as fast as you opened it. I did that. I don't get this. Book closed. Let's try this again. Open up the Bible. Take a look. And this went on and on. So I no longer opened up the word of God. But then when I came to Christ, I began to, to study the word of God, to read the word of God, to love the word of God because I saw it like I had never seen it before. And I believe that's true for all of us that are saved. We began to see truth. We began to see the truth of who, who we really are. We began to see the truth of who Jesus is we began to see and understand the devastating nature of sin, and we also began to see the truth of the overwhelming need that we had for Jesus Christ. And it was like our lives were lived out in black and white and then becoming like technicolor. I remember years ago when we had first come to the Lord, there was a babysitter. I've shared this with you before. They used to come to the house to, to care for our kids when we went out, and her name was Laura. And Laura was diagnosed with uh, brain cancer. Uh, what year was that? Do you remember? 95. And uh, we had kind of lost touch with her because she went away to college. Well, one day we heard a knock on our front door and we opened the door and it's like, who is this? Didn't even recognize her. She had been undergoing chemotherapy treatments and didn't even look like the same person, but we knew that she was, of course. So we began, especially Jackie, she began to minister to her and bring her to the scriptures. And we brought her to the Harvest Crusade that year. 
when she received Christ. And as Jackie would read the scriptures to her, because her, her sight was failing, her body was shutting down, and, and Jackie said, you know, do you want me to stop? Are you tired? She says, no, 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 keep reading, keep reading, keep reading. It's, now it's, it's, it's become clear to me. Everything is now alive. This book is alive. Are those the words that she used? Much richer. Isn't that a wonderful thing? When God opens up our eyes and we begin to see things for what they were and things for what they truly are. Life in Christ, so incredibly beautiful. Well, Paul experienced the very same thing. And here we find Paul, it says that he went to the synagogue. But he didn't go to the synagogue as he had gone before. Now, he preached Jesus. And he's not talking about peripheral issues. He's not trying to twist arms off from the religious system. He's not trying to fix anything. The, the greatest message that he shared is Jesus. That was his focus. And he focuses on, on two major things. First, verse 22 tells us that Paul focused on Jesus as the Son of God and of course, Jesus as the Son of God is also the Messiah or the Savior. And again, he's not just kind of easing his way into it. He's not sidestepping the truth. There is no seeker-friendly message. He goes right to the main subject of the entire Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. And of course, who is that? Well, you know who it is. It's Jesus Hebrews 10, verse 7 says, And then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And Paul understood like no one else understood the great obstacles that the religious Jews faced in accepting Jesus as Messiah. And that's the truth that Jesus taught. And that is that he is the Son of God. That was a major place of contention. On the morning that Jesus was crucified, he was there on trial. And what was the great concern of the religious leaders of the day? Well, the Gospel of Mark tells us in chapter 14, verses 61 through 65, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven, then the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need we of any further witness? We have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him and to say to him, Prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. What is it that so stirred the hearts of the Jewish leaders? Jesus said, I am. And they knew exactly what he was talking about. I am the Christ, the Son of God. And they went ballistic. They understood clearly what Jesus was claiming. He claimed to be God the Son. So as Paul began to preach the scriptures to them, he no doubt brought them, you know, in the synagogue, brought them to the incredible prophetic psalm, Psalm 2. And in this psalm, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. And here's what it says in verses 7 through 9. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. 
Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And David, as he wrote this, he's, he's kind of bringing us into a conversation in the Godhead between God the Father and God the Son. In the, the following verses, 10 through 12, it says, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, that's the Son of God, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are they who put their trust in him. And perhaps Paul went to Isaiah chapter 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Here Messiah is described as the Son of God and Mighty God. Think back to Genesis chapter 1. It tells us this in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the name God there is Elohim. And the suffix I am means it's plural. The plurality. In Isaiah 48, the Son is speaking while making reference to God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And it tells us in verse 16, Come near to me and hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. Speaking, of course, of Jesus. In Genesis 1, verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image. He didn't say, let me make man in my image. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Again, this discourse in heaven, the Godhead speaking, conversing. And the Bible teaches us that there are three persons in the Godhead. And when you think about this, the, the most difficult thing about the Christian concept of the Trinity is that there's no way for any of us to perfectly and completely understand it. But we believe it by faith. Why? Because God says there is the Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three in one. And the Trinity is a concept that, that is impossible for any human being to completely understand, let alone explain. And here's why. Because God is infinitely greater than we are, and we can't think like he thinks. We don't understand like he understands. But he knows everything. So we cannot expect to be able to fully understand. But the Bible teaches us that the Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Think, think with me about John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Think about John chapter 17, verse 21. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And you see, the, the Jews, they really had no answer for this. In Genesis 1.26 that we just quoted, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. 
they claimed that God was speaking to angels. But let me ask this question. Were we created in the image of angels? No. We are created in the image and likeness of God. And the very next verse, in verse 27, makes it crystal clear. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Again, speaks of the plurality of the Godhead. So Paul speaks in the synagogue to the Jewish people that Jesus is the Son of God, but also that Jesus is the Christ or Messiah. It says proving that Jesus is the Christ. Proving. Well, how do you think he proved it? There's only one way, and that's with the Scriptures. That's the only way. It's the only irrefutable way. It's through the Word of God. If you haven't picked it up, there's a handout on the back table there where the communion cups are. Just some of the prophetic passages that perhaps Paul used. He probably used a great number of them. But it explains the prophecies regarding the the fulfilled prophecies of Jesus Christ. And more than likely, he probably shared many of them. More than likely, Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Then, of course, we're familiar with Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 that describes the horrific crucifixion of the Messiah. But not only is it, was it a horrific death, but the reason that he died, Isaiah 53 tells us that he died for our transgressions. Why? Because we need a Savior. He died for our transgressions. And it says that the Lord, the Father, laid on the Son the iniquity of us all. Piled it all up. He laid it on Jesus Christ, who became our sin. Psalm 16 speaks of the resurrection of the Messiah from the dead. David Speaking to God the Father, Psalm 16, verse 10, But thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One, who is the Messiah, to see corruption. In other words, you will let him die, but you will not allow him to be dead so long that his body sees corruption or decay. And this is all incredible. What a great and wonderful, complete picture of what God has done and the message that he is sending not only to us as Gentiles, but to the Jews and throughout the entire world. And Paul the Apostle now baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. He probably could have gone on and on, and maybe he did. We don't know exactly what he shared. All I know is he preached Christ in the synagogues. What it says here is that what he said, that Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is Messiah, it could not be refuted. Verse 22 says he proved it. He proved these things. And it tells that the Jews were confounded and perplexed. You know, as if their entire religious world was brought into question. They were amazed, verse 21, amazed at Paul's conversion. Can you imagine? He's, he was expected to go in there and preach just like he always preached as a rabbi and as a Pharisee. And now, he's got a whole different message, doesn't he? What is it? What changed? Well, salvation, and certainly we know that 
grace, the grace of God, was revealed to him. The people knew him as Saul of Tarsus. They knew he was highly educated under Rabbi Gamaliel. And he's come from Jerusalem to our city of Damascus into our synagogue. And when he walked in there, they probably expect him to speak against Christ, against Christianity, against Jesus as the Son of God, against the Messiah. That was their expectation, but they got exactly the opposite. They received an argument for Jesus. They received arguments for Christianity. Can you imagine what an incredible shock? Well, now historically, what we're going to find here is there's a three-year gap. We're only going to go as far as verse 22 today, but there's a three-year gap between verse 22 of Acts chapter 9 and verse 23. How do we know this? Well, we learn from Paul's letter to the Galatians that he left Damascus for three years and spent that time in relative solitude. He went out to the desert. And here's what it tells us in Galatians 1, verses 15 through 18. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Don't you love that? (laughs) Called me by his grace. He's saying, I don't deserve any of this. But God has called me by his grace. You've been called by his grace too. You didn't deserve any of it. But he's given you everything that you need. He's given you salvation. And here's why. He says, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. And immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them that were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia, and return again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him for 15 days. Now when Paul got saved on the road to Damascus, this passage here in Galatians gives us valuable insight into his early Christian life that we don't find anywhere else in the Bible. Certainly saved on the road to Damascus, and he begins to preach a gospel, the gospel there where he ultimately had to flee for his life. We're not going to study that today, but we're going to get to that, Lord willing, next week. So he went to the desert of Arabia for three years, then was brought back to Damascus and then to Jerusalem. And what Paul is describing here is that one might have the thought that right after conversion, he might have immediately gone to Jerusalem. I think think that would probably be the expected route. He would go to meet with the apostles and to learn from them. That's what most people would have thought. But God said, no. God took him. He kind of plucked him out. and He said, no, I'm going to send you to the desert. I'm going to send you to Arabia for three years. Why? Well, he certainly missed out on the three and a half years the apostles spent with Jesus. So God says, I'm going to send you to be with me. I'm going to spend time with you alone. There's some things, Paul, that you need to unlearn. Then there's some things that you do need to learn. So for three years, Paul was under the direction of God's Holy Spirit to teach him the ways of God more completely, to teach him the way of grace. Three years of preparation. And God took Paul, who had this brilliant legal mind, 
who spent his entire life learning the prophets in the Old Testament, and God saved him. And the teacher, the Holy Spirit, came inside of Paul, and immediately all kinds of things began to take place in his heart and in his mind, like lights going off, and God would reveal to him that the volume of the book testifies of Jesus. The things the Father spoke within the Godhead in those early chapters in Genesis, when God said, let, let us make man in our image, Paul would realize that spoke of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, did not speak of angels as, as I had mentioned. The things that Paul had previously taught in a synagogue. God took those things away. He unlearned those things and, and injected truth into his heart. And when Paul realized this, the reality of Jesus Christ as God became alive in his mind. And other things began to take place too. I think of the passage in Genesis chapter 22 when God spoke to Abraham. And Paul, through that passage, realized that God was pointing ahead to Jesus and the sacrifice that he would make. Verse 2 of Genesis 22 says, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And all these things began to make sense to Paul as they spoke of Jesus. And he realized that the message of Jesus isn't limited to the New Testament, but it's also certainly the Old Testament speaks of Jesus page after page, book after book. And that message from the very beginning was to believe by faith. Remember the Bible says about Abraham, Abraham believed by faith and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That was even before the law. He believed by faith. And this is what God revealed to the Apostle Paul. He believed that Jesus is the Son of God and he believed that he is God the Son. And he believed that Jesus is the Messiah that God sent. And what Paul needed to learn now is the basis of salvation. Okay, I realize, I believe that Jesus is God. I believe he is Messiah. Now, how about salvation? Well, salvation is on the basis of grace through faith and not of works. Do you remember what Paul said when he was Saul? But he recorded this in the epistles. Before he got saved, he said he was blameless before the law. In other words, I kept every single element of the law, and he knew it was outward for sure. But when the law of God, after he came to know Christ, when the law of God was written upon his heart, he began to see himself in a whole different way. Like, I'm not blameless. In fact, he said this in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. He said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? There he was. I'm blameless before the law, and now he sees himself, he sees his heart. Oh, wretched man that I am. You see, he began to realize through the gospel of grace that he was helpless apart from Christ. He realized, I cannot be saved based on my perceived adherence to the law, the Old Testament law. I need Jesus. And he realized I can only be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. 
He came to the understanding that salvation was entirely apart from himself, but totally dependent upon Jesus. For he would write in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he said, it's for by grace are you saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. Again, this is a man that prided himself on keeping the law, and then he said, no way, I'm wretched. And it's only by grace through faith that I'm saved. And all these things began to take part and click in his heart, click in his life. He began to understand the true gospel. He began to understand the love of God expressed through Jesus Christ on the cross. And it all began to make some sense. And you see, up to this point in Paul's life, the religious Jews, including himself, interpreted the Old Testament through the law of Moses that God has provided for man to keep. And certainly we know the law is perfect. The psalmist said the law is perfect, converting the soul. But you see, we need to realize that we can't keep it. But the thinking back then in Paul's day, in Saul's day as a Pharisee, if we kind of kept it well enough, then one day we could possibly, by our own virtue, get into heaven. Did you ever think that before you came to Christ? I used to worry myself sick about that before I knew Jesus, because I had no idea. And yes, we endeavor to do what's right, don't we? But we also realize, even as we endeavor to do what's right, we still mess up. And of course, Paul came to that understanding. And now here's the Holy Spirit who has taught the, the Apostle Paul over the course of three years that salvation is a gift from God through Jesus Christ. And it caused him to realize that the law had been given, yes, for our benefit to keep us safe. You see, when we, we obey God's law, it's protection, isn't it? When we disobey God's law, we get in trouble. And you see what takes place in the world around us now. I mean, most people, I shouldn't say most, some people disregard the law of God and you see the mess it's gotten this world into because the law is designed by God to protect us as well as to lead us to Christ we're going to get that in a second so he realized that there's something more to this than following the law and he realized I can never keep every single aspect of it and certainly he was familiar with the teaching that Jesus gave on the Sermon on the Mount. That teaching that Jesus gave, he spoke of the issues of the heart. It spoke of our inability to entirely keep the law inwardly. Again, this would relate to him because he knew outwardly he looked good. Everybody would look at him. He's an esteemed man. He's brilliant. He does all the right things. But again, in his heart, he says, I'm a wreck. I'm wretched. Because he realized that he was a great violator of God's law in his heart. So the law had incredible and has incredible purpose, and among which the law is designed by God to show us that we can't keep it. And then, of course, to show us if we can't keep the law the need that we have for Messiah, for a Savior. Paul would speak of this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. 
He said, but the scripture hath concluded all are under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we no longer are under a schoolmaster. He says, before faith came, we were kept under the law, and the sentence for not keeping God's law was, was upon us. We broke the law of God. We were guilty and found guilty of breaking the law, and because we broke God's law, our sentence was a death sentence, death row, so to speak, destined to be separated from God forever. And then something happened, just like it did with Paul. God's grace was revealed. There we were, spiritually separated from God because of our sin, convicted of breaking the law, held prisoner and captive with no hope of escape, it seemed. Now picture yourself under lockup without hope, just kind of existing in, until someone introduced you to someone who would rescue you. And the rescuer, our Messiah Jesus Christ, was revealed to you who would offer you forgiveness for whatever you've done, past, present, and future. And with his forgiveness came pardon, no longer on death row, but set free. Now, is it because you were, you were set free and released because of good behavior? Absolutely not. You were freed because your crime, including all the evidence of it, has been taken away. It's taken away on the cross of Christ. Someone else. That someone else is Jesus. He took your prison sentence for you that included the death penalty. And you know, it, it's a very simple gospel but it is a powerful gospel. It is a life-changing gospel. And some might look at this and say, well, listen, it's just too good to be true. And it is, but it is true. And we're asked to just believe what God has told us that he would do and he did and accept it by faith that you and I, we have been forgiven of our sin on the grounds of faith through the finished work of the cross of Calvary. In this family is the difference between those who are trying to be good enough by trying to keep the law of God and those that have trusted in Jesus Christ by faith. So what do we have? We have the law, our inability to keep it. We have the gospel of grace that says, I know you can't keep the law, but I've come to save you. I've come to save you through faith. So yes, the, the law had its purpose, our schoolmaster, the law pointed to us and pointed out to us, and what would it say? What would the law say? And if you even consider your, your trip in here today, what would the law say to you as you went 36 and a 35? It would say failure. It would say failure. And when somebody on your way home cuts you off and you get angry, what's that say? Failure. Failure, failure. 
You haven't made the grade. You don't pass. You didn't get 100% on every test, quiz, or homework, so therefore you fail. Now, isn't that a little bit strict, doesn't it seem? Fail this test because of a punctuation mark? Maybe a little sloppy in handwriting. But what that is, family, that's the letter of the law. The law says you must, you must, you must, you must, you must, and if you don't, you fail. And it only takes one failure to disqualify a person from heaven. One. James said if you failed in one point, you might as well have failed in them all. So the, the purpose of the law showed us the truth about ourselves. And the truth about ourselves is I, I have failed and I do fail, and therefore I need Jesus Christ. I need Jesus and Paul faced a great challenge in, in bringing this truth to the heart of the Jewish people, these truths that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah. And with those two truths comes the realization that God came to save us from the penalty of failure to keep every single letter. So yes, there, there is forgiveness. God grants forgiveness. But you know what? It, it's more than forgiveness. It's the wiping out of sin through justification. We just sang about that too. How beautiful. Our slate has been wiped clean. And that's what Jesus offers us. How? Through his shed blood. The cleansing power of the Son of God that was shed for me and for you is not only forgiveness, but also for another term as well, and that is the term justification. There was a crime, sin. But justification tells us, number one, that we're forgiven. And second, all evidence has been destroyed. All evidence has been destroyed. You have been given a new identity in Jesus Christ, and he is perfect. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And when God the Father looks upon you, who does he see? He sees Jesus in you, who has destroyed sin in your life. Yes, we still sin, but the price has been paid for it. He sees us as holy and blameless and perfect and beautiful, an adorned bride waiting to see your bridegroom. Romans 3.28 says, Therefore we conclude that man is justified by faith without or apart from the deeds of the law. And then in Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore being justified, the word justified again, just as if we've never sinned, wiped clean. Therefore being justified by faith, here's what we have. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't that what mankind needs? Peace. But there's only one form of peace that's really complete and total, and that is the peace of Christ. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. That's what man needs. That's what Paul the Apostle needed. That's what we need too. For three years, Paul was alone with God in a desert. And out in that desert, he received the gospel not by conferring with man. This is so incredible to me. He didn't talk to a soul. He talked to God, and God talked to him. 
direct revelation from God's Holy Spirit. And he came out of that desert and he began to preach that man is saved through the basis of faith, grace through faith. And Paul realized that God has been declaring it from Genesis on. The message hasn't changed. And it began to click in his life. And what Paul received in the desert by the Holy Spirit, he realized that what I've learned out there is a perfect match between what Jesus taught, what he heard from the apostles and the other Christians, and what the Scriptures taught. Of course there must be a connection. Of course there must be a perfect match. Why? Because God's Word is perfect. And the Word of God, the Scriptures that He has given us are perfect. And they're very consistent in saying that there is one Messiah, one Savior, one Lord, and that is Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And family, that is the message that people need to understand. And we invent all kinds of different things throughout human history, other ways to somehow work our way into heaven. Idolatry, and it started way back in Genesis, but you know what? The message of salvation has always remained the same. So between Genesis 1-1 and the end of the book of Revelation, you know what? Everything in there is all about Jesus Christ. In the volume of the book, it is written of me, and there's a great and glorious conclusion, and that is that Jesus wins. And when Jesus wins, we win too, don't we? And praise God for that. You know, but the, the question remains... You know, as we've, we looked at the Apostle Paul's life before Christ and after Christ and how he, he trusted so much in himself. He trusted in his intellect. He trusted in his upbringing. He trusted in his Jewish heritage. He trusted in the fact that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. But he didn't trust in Jesus. And then when he finally came to salvation, he realized. He, remember we talked about this, I think, last week. He said, all that was, all that was dung, I counted as loss. For the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. So the question for us is this. You know, who have you been trusting in? And you know, that's a question we can ask outside of this building. It's a question that really needs to be asked. Who are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in for your salvation? Who are you trusting in in order to make your way into heaven? Some might say, well, I just don't believe. Well, you, you need to believe. You need to be, learn to begin to believe. Just a little bit, just a little bit of faith. Just a little bit, and God can work with that. You know, so often people, maybe they won't say this outright, but they, if they don't believe in Christ and believe they can get there themselves, then they're trusting in themselves to be good enough. And what I found in those that would say, well, you know, listen, I, I'm not trying to be condescending in any way because I've said these words. I'm not that bad. There's people a lot worse than I am, you know, before I came to Christ. You know, I, I, believe, I believe that the good I have done has far outweighed the bad. What is that? That's self-confidence. But I can tell you this, and I believe you, you would also believe this to be true. Those that they claim such a thing, their lives are very frustrating. Frustrating because, well, how much is enough? You know, the scriptures tell us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
you know, picture we're all lined up on the shore of the United States of America. We're all going to swim to Europe, right? We're going to swim to Europe. We all start out great. We're swimming along, swimming along. The greatest swimmers in the world are way out ahead of us. But you know what? Nobody can make it on their own. Everyone sinks. Every single one. We can't trust on our own ability to swim those waters. Everyone sinks. And we need a rescuer. We need an SOS. And thank you, Jesus, that you came as our Savior to rescue us. So trusting in ourselves, yes, it it leads to frustration. It leads to uncertainty, doesn't it? Uncertainty of the future. God does not want us to guess about our eternity. He wants us to know. And 1 John 5.13 speaks of that. He wants us to know, not guess. This isn't a game of darts. God wants us to know. And apart from knowing, where does it lead us? It leads us to an uncertainty and an uneasiness and it makes life difficult, can lead to depression and all kinds of other things. Trusting in ourselves leads to discouragement because we know that we've failed. When is failure going to end? What can be done about it? It's this. Who can do something with it? And that is Jesus. Paul said, who shall deliver me from this body of death? (laughs) And he he knew it was Jesus Christ. Yes, this body of death, this rotting, stinking corpse. (laughs) Jesus delivered me. That's the solution. Jesus is the answer. And it took Paul an encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus to get him to that place where he realized Who are you, Lord? And what would you have me to do? Who are you? And you know, when that question is asked of God, who are you? God doesn't say, I'm holding that one back from you. Those that seek, the scriptures are so clear, those that seek, find. And I'm so grateful that when we knock on that door, God answers. He knows our need. And he loves you. He loves me. And he is willing that none perish, but all come to repentance. And sometimes it takes a long time to get to that place. But praise God that he he waits us out, doesn't he? (laughs) He waits us out. He's long-suffering. He's patient with us. And I know that, you know, as I look back on my life from from the time that when I came to Christ, and I look back and I could see God trying to get my attention, trying to get my attention, trying to get my attention so that he could reveal his great grace to me. That my life is not my own. I am bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus. The precious blood of Jesus Christ who has cleansed me of all of my sin. And therefore, we're called to glorify God in our body and our spirit. Why? Because we belong to him. Vessels of honor. You could look at your life and say, I don't feel like one. But you know what? In Christ you are. And you're equipped. You're equipped to serve the true and living God. If anyone would like to just bow before the Lord, 
in repentance and acknowledgement that, that you've sinned and you've fallen short. Maybe for the very first time that you need a Savior or for the, the hundredth time or the thousandth, thousandth time, God is here for you. If you need to recommit your heart to Jesus today, what, what a great place to do that. What a great time to do that. There's no better time than right now. So pray with me, please. Maybe some of you are on a Damascus road right now. And God's shining his light brightly right into your soul. And he's revealing himself to you. It's time to respond. Who are you, Lord? And what would you have me to do? And Father, I come to you this morning. And I thank you for the opportunity that you gave today, the opportunity that you've given me right along, even when I've said no to you. Today, that has changed. I'm saying yes to your invitation to come to you for salvation. So I bring my sinful heart to you, and I ask you to forgive me, and I trust that your precious blood that was poured out on Mount Calvary has, would cleanse me from all of my sin. Cleanse me now, dear Jesus. Cleanse me, please. I believe that you died on the cross for me and that you were buried in a tomb and rose again on the third day to provide for me the promise of eternal life. And I believe it comes only through you because you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life, and no man comes to the Father except by you. So here I come. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving me, and thank you for loving me. And help me to turn from my, my ways, because you have just given me a brand new life. And may my new life be evident to those around me that I would share with them also what God has done and what God continues to do. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen.